morning, Risen. The scripture reading for the sermon this morning comes from Luke 20, 19 through 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that they had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the government. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so, uh, you know, as rocks read, right, uh, we're, we're in the Gospel of Luke, um, Caesar, God, this is sort of on the interaction of church and state. Um, if you were to ask me what are some of the most difficult passages to speak from, um, I'd say hell and politics, <laughs> right? Actually, I, 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 take, I take that back. I'd rather preach on hell, okay, <laughs> than politics, um, but, you know, one of the good things about going through an entire book of the Bible is that it forces us in a loving and helpful way uh, to wrestle with some issues that uh, perhaps we would not spend a lot of time trying to be confronted with, right? Um, it gives us an opportunity uh, to carefully and prayerfully walk through uh, very controversial issues and topics and themes that I would not choose, Okay, and, and, and we happen to find ourselves in one of those places today, right? Uh, certain religious leaders have come to Jesus to ask him about his politics. Man, I feel for Jesus. <laughs> and uh, there's a huge context here of what's going on, right? And, and context is king. You know, without context, uh, the Bible can be misunderstood. It can be misapplied. It can be abused. And so that's the first thing we're going to do. The first thing we're going to take a look at is, again, the context. The second thing then we're going to take a look at is Jesus' answer. And then the last thing we'll take a look at is some biblical principles as we think through what it means to uh, politically and culturally engage with society as Christians. Okay, so first the context, right? Uh, in our text, it says that uh, scribes and chief priests came to Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, if I were to be really simple about it, uh, the scribes and the chief priests, uh, this particular group was very passionate about seeking independence from Rome, okay? Uh, they harbored tons and tons of animosity towards the Roman authority, and they just wanted to revolt, right? They felt like they were being oppressed. They wanted to take back their country and their nation and their land. So that's one group. Now, in Mark's account of this scene, 
there weren't just the scribes and the chief priests who approached Jesus. There was also a second group. And so if you take a look at Mark's gospel, there was this second group called the Herodians. Who are the Herodians? Well, the Herodians were uh, a group of Jewish uh, leaders and a Jewish political party that supported Roman imperial power. They didn't want things to change. They wanted to keep the status quo. And so these two Jewish groups, they, the scribes on one hand and the Herodians, they're on opposite sides of the political spectrum. And so they have come to Jesus, and they're trying to get him to choose a side. <laughs> right? They're, they're saying, Jesus, what are your politics? Which party are you a member of? They're trying to force Jesus' hand, you see? And it's helpful to know this, that actually 25 years before this moment, uh, there was an actual armed revolt led by the scribe party by a man named Judas. And so when Judas led this revolt, he did sort of the similar things that Jesus was doing. He cleansed the temple. He got, all, he got rid of all the um, non-Jews that he felt like was compromising and polluting right, um, what God wanted for them. And so he kicked out all the Romans. He, there was like a very strong, strict divide. He led an armed band, right, um, through the temple. He said also, let's not pay taxes anymore to Rome, right? Let's reinvest in ourselves. And then lastly, he said, Caesar is not king, only God is our king. We only answer to the law of God, you see. This was 25 years later. Uh, Judas Eventually was caught. The Roman authorities executed him. But Jesus is se seems to be doing the same thing. He seems to be this sort of political figure. And so they're trying to figure out, Jesus, what are you up to? And they're trying to force his hand. Now, if Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, what's going to happen? He'll get in trouble with the scribes, right? They'll say, Jesus is not a true Israelite. He doesn't love God enough. He's a compromiser. He wants to support this, this real pagan, Roman, godless government. If Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, then the Herodians will say, this guy is trying to disrupt the peace that we have, that we've worked so hard for. He's trying to lead a rebellion. He's putting a target on our backs, and then Rome will come and arrest Jesus. So they're trying to uh, really have Jesus pick a side and really trying to use Jesus, right, for their own sort of particular um, intentions. One side is saying, Jesus, don't you care about God and his law? The other side is saying, Jesus, don't you care about peace with our neighbors? Right, both, both good things. But they have made it as if Jesus has only two options, these two options, which happen to divide the world, which is not good either, they're not giving Jesus his third way. They're not giving him an alternative. They're not allowing him to think for himself. They're not allowing him to be critical about their own particular views. It's a lose-lose situation. They just want a simple yes or no, right? Jesus, stop dodging the question, which party are you in? <laughs> which way are you going to vote? But Jesus, I think the first thing we learn here in our passage Jesus refuses political simplicity. That's the first thing we learn. Jesus resists. He always resists political simplicity. 
you know, when Christianity first arose in the world, actually, they didn't call it a religion, you see, because it, it bucked uh, the normals, uh, sorry, the norms of typical religion, right? It actually seemed very anti-religious. Why is that? Because there was this emphasis of grace over moral righteousness. There was this emphasis of forgiveness over judgment. And there was lots of empathy and fellowship between differing communities and disagreeing thoughts. So it didn't seem like a religion. Because religions are very black and white. At the same time, it didn't seem like atheism because um, they did worship God on a particular day of the week. There was sort of these ceremonial baptisms. People prayed, and, and there were these very bold teachings of Jesus. So people were always confused about Christianity. They, they couldn't pin it. And then, and then it also seemed like this sort of social revolution because Christians were so concerned for the poor. They were so concerned for uh, um, the oppressed woman in a patriarchal society, uh, orphans, refugees. So you see, Christianity in that day, um, I don't know if it's like today where, you know, like it was associated with two options. Back then, it was in a category all of its own. It, it didn't fall into the two available options in the time, and it was actually called uh, tertium quid. It's a Latin word, Latin phrase that means the third way. That's what they called it. It's the third way. You know? Oh, what side are the Christians on? And everyone say it's, it's the third way. Something new. Something radically different. So Jesus refuses to take a side. But then let's see how he responds. Let's take a look at Jesus' answer. In verse 23 it says, Jesus perceived their craftiness. In other words, Jesus knew they were trying to get him to choose a side, right? Um, and so here's his answer. He says to them, show me a denarius, and whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said Caesar's. And so he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Very cryptic. <laughs> Man. Now, in that day, on a denarius, there was an inscription imprinted on it saying, Tiberius Caesar, son of God. That's what it said. Pretty crazy, but that's how powerful he was. So Jesus could have said, you know, um, hey, very literally, this is what he's saying. Um, the denarius has his name on it. Give it to him, right? Or he could say, this is blasphemous because there's one, only one true God. Don't pay the tax, right? He could say those things, but he doesn't do either of that. He says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. And so, you know, um, as I was trying to figure out what this meant and I was reading a bunch of commentaries, it, was, it got even more confusing, okay? <laughs> so I decided to use my engineering education. So I was like, I need to reverse engineer this. So let's reverse engineer this, okay? What things are Caesar's things, <laughs> right? Well, very literally, it's the denarius, isn't it? Caesar has control over Rome's economic machine, right? He has control over who gets the money, which people, which departments, which cities, which politicians, which governors. He has control over the Rome's money. So very literally, 
That's what Jesus is saying. You know, at the end, in a, not at the end of the day, but very superficially, it is Caesar's money. You know, so if he wants it, we got to give it to him. That's very superficially what he's saying, because he is the king. He is the emperor. You see, like uh, if you know our president, whatever tax you know they do, we may not like it or like it, but legally we do have to pay it. That's what Jesus is saying, right? Okay, he's the one in charge. We got to do it. But then he doesn't stop there. You know, at this, when he says that, you think that maybe uh, the Herodians are, yes, Jesus is with us. He's on our side, guys. But then in another breath, Jesus then says, give to God the things that are God's. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul says that there is no authority except from God. And those that exist, those in authority have been instituted by God, right? And then in John chapter 19, when Pontius Pilate says to Jesus, don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? What does Jesus say? He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above, right? So what Jesus is saying is, Caesar, you may be a king. This is your country. You are the man. And you can order people to do whatever you want or else they'll face punishment. But don't overstep your boundary. You're not the ultimate authority, right? That's what Jesus is saying. In a different way, Jesus is kind of saying, you know, that, that phrase that we know in the Gospel of Luke, don't fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul. Right? In other words, Jesus is saying, is like, look, no one is going to pressure me to choose a side. Right? Whether it's, you know, certain Jewish leaders that want to ruin my reputation, make me an outcast, or Caesar who can even imprison me and put me to death. Even that, I'm not going to give you what you want. Right? Jesus is saying, there is a greater authority. And Jesus is saying, when he says this, give God to what is God, what he's saying is there's a greater authority that all of us owe our lives to. That all of us owe our fears to and our ultimate loyalty to. Right? Give to God the things that are God's. Your thoughts, your mind, your heart, your passion, your will, your life. I think, though, I kind of want to take some time to flesh this out. What does that look like for you and me right now to give to God the things that are God's. And so, you know, what does it look like to engage with politics and culture as a Christian that live alongside people who aren't Christians? What does that look like? So this comes to the last point. I want to delineate some biblical principles. Biblical principles, all right? First, the first biblical principle is that there cannot be political primacy. Now, what does that mean? Well, the first biblical principle of Jesus' answer, right, um, what he's saying is, you know, I know that there are a lot of political pressures for us to choose a side. But what Jesus is saying here, if there's anything that he's saying is you shouldn't give in to that kind of pressure, right? That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have conviction, that we shouldn't make biblically informed decisions, 
But what Jesus is saying is that there's no political party in the states or abroad that encapsulates all of Jesus' teaching, right? That's, that, that would be the Bible. So for a Christian, every political idea, every political program has to be, what Jesus is saying is you've got to examine that under the authority of God. And while there are clear biblical values, I think, I think we know that execution can be very different. Hindsight is twenty twenty. And so what Jesus is saying, look, we can't keep pressuring each other to choose a side. What he's saying is we have to reasonably discuss and discern these, these you know, politics and programs, the pros and cons. We cannot have this unquestionable loyalty, right? We cannot give this political primacy, right? There's so much to learn and to discuss, so much to test, to weigh and evaluate, right? So that's the first thing that Jesus is saying. We cannot give any sort of political party political primacy. Now, the second thing Jesus says is that you can't be also politically complacent, right? If Jesus is saying, give to God that what is God's, then that's what it means. That means you've got to give something. You've got to do something. You can't be a passive observer. You can't be politically complacent. Because in Jesus' day, there was this group. It was called the Essenes. And what they did is they just completely culturally and politically, they just disengaged. They withdrew to the desert. They tried to avoid all the conflict and the problems and messiness of society. They didn't want to get involved. But what Jesus is saying is he doesn't, he's saying, if you're my follower, you can't opt out of society. Right? But Jesus is saying, as, as a follower of me, you have to engage your heart into this. Like, I know it's stressful, man. Like, I, I was talking to someone the other day. We had a game night in my house, and I'm like, man, I am, I am definitely at this point, politically and culturally drained. <laughs> like, like I, I was like, I'm just, I listened to this podcast, and so many, like, Christians and pastors are burnt out. So I get it, right? Like, it's draining. It's nonstop. The media is just constant. So I do think that there is wisdom in taking a break. You know, you don't have to, you know, you, you don't have to engage in every conversation, down every hill. I think Jesus is saying you, you do have to give to God what is God's. You still do have to engage your will and your life in society for my glory and for the love of my neighbor, right? The last thing, the last biblical principle we see Jesus exercising in this passage is um, wisdom and humility, right? Notice how Jesus answers the trap, right? They're like, Jesus, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar, you know, and he could have just blasted them, right? Like, I'm so sick and tired of this, <laughs> right? He just could have, he, do, he, does do, he did do that, right, at the temple, right? He flipped over <laughs> the merchants, but he doesn't do that all the time. So there is a time for righteous anger, but not every time is righteous anger, right? Some, right? Um, he, he could have said, forget, you know, Caesar ain't God, right? Revolt. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, also, guys, calm down. We got to just be, you know, nice, nice little Christians. Don't say anything. In Jesus' response, there's just so much wisdom. There's so much humility. It's disarming. It's thought-provoking. Think about this, okay? Jesus is God. It must have been so offensive to him 
to see on the denarius Caesar, son of God. Can you imagine that? Jesus keeps us cool. <laughs> and I think this is such an important principle to learn. Because I think you and I, we, we live in a society where the political pressures, the, the trapped questions, you know, um, the vo- volatility, it just jars us emotionally, communally. And like I said, I, I do believe that there are times where righteous anger is warranted when there are such atrocious injustices. But I, but I also believe that much can be accomplished through wise and humble rhetoric. So before you respond to a post, <laughs> to a text, to a Reddit thread, just take a quarter. <laughs> just play with it in your hand. Take your time. <laughs> Pray and ask God for wise and humble words, you know, and then respond. So those are the three biblical principles I think will be helpful. Not political primacy, not political complacency, and humility and wisdom. Helpful, but hard, right? I mean, I, I lose my, my impatience all the time. I mean, I just had to stop following pretty much everyone, okay? I, I, went, I went off Instagram and Facebook. I pretty much fasted for like an entire year. Not to have sort of this political complacency and, and you know, to, have, to be humble and not angry all the time, that, that, that's, that's so difficult, isn't it? I think it's easy to get emotionally drained just by all the negativity. It's easy to snap back, call people names. So where do we find then the, the sort of the power and the hope uh, to courageously love God? Right? In the midst of all the political primacy and the political pressures, where do we find uh, the, the hope and power to love our neighbors and not just disengage? Where do we find the hope and power to be wise and humble in all the circumstances? It can only come from Jesus. Right? right? If, if you think about what the gospel is, It's about Jesus as the king of kings. And he was uh, politically prime. He was number one. He didn't answer to nobody. He was kind of politically complacent. He didn't have any animosity. He was comfortable in heaven. But when Jesus was arrested and one of his disciples drew his sword, Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? A legion is 10,000 soldiers. 12 legions, 120,000 angels that Jesus has access to. And then he says, but how would the scriptures be fulfilled? You see, Jesus had all the power in the world, but he... He he put that aside and he put his pride aside to accomplish something greater. He knew that he needed to bring something different, something more transcendent than just continual warfare, constant power grabbing. 
So what he does is he leaves heaven and he enters into our world. The volatility of our world. The anger directed towards him from our world. He enters into the sin and the brokenness and the messiness of our world. I mean, he entered in the most toxic places. And he brings a spiritual power that's so great it conquered even his enemies, his own disciples, right? He had Simon the Zealot that wanted to revolt against Rome. And then he had Matthew who was a tax collector and worked for the imperial machine. And by this supernatural grace, he was able to win his enemies over and bring them united in his mission. And when we think about this, not on some crazy post, not on fear of where the world is going, when we just think about the gospel, when we crack open the Bible and we meditate and reflect what Jesus has done for us, that he conquers sin with grace, punishment with mercy, friend, I think it's going to encourage you. I think it's going to give you hope to love God with the utmost kind of primacy that he deserves. You're not going to be afraid of what other people think. I think that it's going to give us the love again to engage and persevere in society and love those who need help. And I truly believe that when we are in tune and in communion and fellowship with with Jesus, the Holy Spirit's going to give us humility. You know? take the burden with those who strongly disagree with us, even those who are strongly against us. Friends, that's the gospel. It's about a king who thought your life was more important than his own views. It's about a friend who will extend unconditional forgiveness as we bumble through life and figure this out. There is no enemy that Jesus will not reconcile with. There is no political opponent he will not seek to win over with love and grace. So friends, I want to encourage y'all to come under Jesus' side. And that's where you're going to find uh, grounding. You're going to find the truth. That's where you're going to find the love that you need and the hope to endure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and um, you know, as we sort of <laughs> roll into this text, we are confronted that nothing that we have to uh, experience is, is not anything you haven't already experienced for us, and we have so much wisdom and an example set before us. But more than that, when we are at our wits' ends, We have a power. We have a king, the king of kings, who is with us. And every single one of us is a different part of maybe the political journey. And I just pray that we would just all be able to show grace to ourselves. I'm sure we've all flip-flopped on certain views and thoughts and candidates and parties. Show grace to ourselves. It's okay. We all make mistakes. We would show grace to each other. And then we would show grace to those outside of the Christian life. And that it would be a purposeful means 
to live out the gospel, which is a king who reached out to those outside of his political life, outside of his cosmic life. So would you over and over again, I don't think this is the first time as a church we're going to encounter this or hear something about this or, you know, every four years at least, but over and over for our church until you bring us home, I pray that you would ground us in the gospel, the truth, the love, and the hope of it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.